Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Okay, welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Daniel Foch. I am a real estate broker and investor and director of economic research at a company called Rare Real Estate. And today, we're going to be talking about the news. We've heard a lot of different news stories in Canada, and um, there's not not a lot of good news, but towards the end of the year, I think... A lot of stories that are coming out that kind of give us indication of what we might be able to expect for the coming year. But before I do that, I would like to introduce a man who actually needs no introduction at this point. Uh, a fellow by the name of Nick Hill. How's it going? Old Saint stop Nick. It, stop it. I, yeah, I guess this time of year, Saint Nick doesn't need an introduction, but I am far from a saint, although I was named after Saint Nicholas, but... Let's leave that out here because I want to start off by talking about Christmas as well because it's around this time of year, Christmas, that every realtor and mortgage agent and probably most salespeople you've ever crossed paths with and most companies send you that email or text, that happy holidays text. And it's obviously a nice time to check on people because, you know, it, it's it's Christmas and people want to get in touch with each other. But just because I entered my email three years ago to get through a paywall to view one property does not mean I need to hear from you on Christmas Day. Yeah, it's actually funny. If I reach out to people, I make sure that it's as genuine as possible by uh, I just really get to the point and ask if they know anyone who's looking to buy or sell real estate. <laughs> Always reminds me of that that meme where there's like ten urinals and the guy walks up right beside and pees right beside the other guy and he's like, "Hey, do you know I'm looking to buy or sell real estate?" <laughs> Anyways, um, I just wanted to share a great message that I got from a, a group chat I'm in speaking about you know sending genuine messages to each other. Um, fellas, just wanted to take a minute to wish you all a very merry Christmas and a happy New Year. Most of all, good health. These days, people don't spend much time or thought on some personal words to their friends and family, and they just copy and paste some random shit and send it on. So after all we've been through together this year, I want to thank you for your friendship, wish you a happy 2018, and say that you're the best gymnastics group a girl could ask for. Best wishes, Susan. So that was sent to a group of guys from a guy named Paul. So pretty funny, obviously not funny enough to get a laugh out of you, Dan. But for those listening, that was uh, that was supposed to be a joke. I'm not, um, anyways, I'm not much of a laugher. It a just uh, just goes to show, you know, uh, it, don't get don't get caught in the if you're if you're someone out, if you're someone out there sending out professional messages to everyone you've ever met, make sure that they're at least somewhat genuine. Don't get don't be a Susan and get caught up in the uh, in the shenanigans of the copy and pasting. Yeah, it is actually funny. You know, it's kind of what salespeople are are uh, are taught, though. Look for the tough points. I think you're going to see like a lot of what do they call it, ambulance chasing in the industry over the next year per se. Um, yeah, and I don't know. I mean, a lot of people are just like looking for play, times like Christmas and birthdays as like these touch points, right? Um, but regardless, we hope everyone has been enjoying some time with their loved ones, family, and friends over the holiday season. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm a I'm a big Christmas guy. I yeah, love well, you're it. Saint Nick. Um, yeah, exactly. But but Dan, actually, you being a bear when it comes to economics and and real estate, does that translate into you being a, a Grinch at Christmas? No, absolutely not. I love quick. I, I I love Christmas. It's one of my favorite times of year. 
<laughs> but if there was a Grinch, uh, it might be the the leader of our central bank, Tiff Macklem. Um, I would say we could have the maybe a rewrite of the story of how how the Tiff stole Christmas this year. It would be, make for an excellent ugly Christmas sweater, perhaps. Yeah, I'm thinking maybe even next year if, if things are still like this, Mary Tiffmas would be a good one um, for when they go on a rate cutting spree, hopefully, by next year. Yeah, hopefully but, by this time next year. Yeah, but we'll be getting to Tiff shortly because um, he does come up in today's episode. But we're talking about a few other things. What you need to know about the foreign home buyers tax. The average income you need to buy a house and what the actual average incomes in each province are. Uh, some other great news articles, best places to live in North America, and then we'll probably finish it off with some noteworthy news stories and the Bank of Canada's announcements and a bit of an outlook for 2023. But before we do that, Dan, you've got a bit of a review for us, don't you? I do. Um, we are going to read a review called Quality Knowledge. It says, quality gents, quality knowledge, quality delivery, might even ask my mum to check it out and write a review. This is Tinkering Thomas YouTube, and the uh, review comes from somebody named The Classy Brit. So if you got uh, if you got time, check out uh, that review and maybe look them up. I have looked him up. Great YouTube page. Actually DM'd him a bit back and forth. Great guy. So uh, thanks for all the support out there, Thomas. Um, from there, I have got a pretty sweet deal of the day for us. I went a little bigger with this one. Um, so the deal of the day, the address is 1714 37 Street, Southeast Calgary, Alberta. The MLS number is T2A1E8. So the MLS description reads, great investment opportunity, well-maintained, solid-built sixplex, five two-bedrooms with full bathroom, and one one-bedroom with full bathroom. Mostly adult long-term tenants, each unit has its own furnace, hot water tank, and fire alarm. Common separate laundry that brings in approximately $80 to $100 a month. All the units are large, bright, with big windows, two entrances and exit, laminate flooring. Furnaces have been maintained uh, regularly and have... Three and three have been replaced recently. New exterior paint, roof is approximately 15 years old, parts parking outside for each unit, excellent revenue, and rental income info available upon request. Well, I didn't have time to request it. So I did a little research and figured out that according to Zumper, the average one bedroom in that area in Calgary rents for about 1563. So we're just gonna use 1600 to keep it a nice easy number. And the average rent for a two-bedroom in Calgary is about eighteen nineteen. So we're going to go a little less, round down, and use eighteen hundred as a number. That plus the laundry brings the total average monthly rent, rental income, I should say, to ten thousand seven hundred dollars a month. Now I like that number. I also like the fact that this has been on Realtor.ca for a whopping ninety-four days. So we take these numbers, take the address, plug this little bit of information that we have into landlord.io's deal analyzer. And we look at our first year metrics, $30,000 net annual cash. Uh, that's that's pretty good. $2,500 monthly cash flow, 9.43% cash on cash return, just under an 8% cap rate. Purchase price on this is $1.215 million. Uh, expected monthly rent, 10700 I put it just twenty grand in closing costs there. 
And I didn't think we might not be able to get an 80-20 loan to value on this dance. So I just did a 75% loan to value, which puts our deposit or sorry, our, our down payment as 303000 I put it as a 6% mortgage rate. Might even be a little low for that kind of product, but hey, wishful thinking maybe. That takes our mortgage payment to $5,516 a month. And I also put, um, I lowered it from 95 occupancy rate to 90% just because we know that, you know, sometimes in Calgary, we don't have that full 100% occupancy rate like we would in other parts of the country. The management fees a month sit around $1,500. Um, so overall, this is a really good deal, uh, in my opinion. Great long-term ROI, um, pretty decent IRR. Anyways, check that out. Yeah, the only thing I probably would have changed about your assumptions there is that um, you might be pushing it a bit to get to 75% loan-to-value on a multiplex like that, given that it is into the commercial loan category. Might mm, be a little exactly. bit better to model it with 30% down rather than 25%. But otherwise, I mean, it looks like a pretty sharp deal. And that wouldn't change the cap rate anyway. It would just change your cash-on-cash cash return. Um, okay, let's get to the episode. Um, first things first, let's chat about the foreign home buyers tax. Um, I've been, I've discussed this one a lot in, in the media. Um, I, I really, I think that it could be argued very well from either side, whether or not it will have a positive or negative impact on the market. But before we deliberate on it, let me just quickly read this uh, statement from CMHC from the media newsroom. So it says, ensuring market housing remains available to Canadians. The government of Canada has passed a new law to help make homes more affordable for people living in Canada. The prohibition on the purchase of residential property by non-Canadians act prevents non-Canadians from buying residential property for Canada for two years, starting on January 1st, 2023. The act defines residential property as buildings with three homes or less as well as parts of buildings like a semi-detached house or a condominium unit. The law does not prohibit the purchase of larger buildings with multiple units. So for our listeners who are targeting those multiplexes, you're probably going to see similar to what you saw in 2017, 2016 in Vancouver, 2017 in Toronto. A lot of the capital just left the areas where it was banned or taxed from and started moving elsewhere. And in Ontario, when Doug Ford came in, he doubled down on that tax and made it province-wide. And then all the, the money just basically left Ontario and started moving to Calgary, started moving to the East Coast. And so it, I think what could happen here is you'll stop seeing this commoditization of housing and financialization of housing. A lot of foreign capital will stop investing in single-family detached homes and start investing in multiplexes, which is good for the development of multiplexes, good for the creation of housing. You want capital chasing those things. But for investors like us, this is new, comp new competition, new competitors being introduced to the market. On the same token, it could also create opportunity because you could be, you know, if you're somebody who owns a duplex, as an example, or, or a single unit, um, it's three or more three or more units. So if you're if you have a duplex and now you want to use these new provincial guidelines or density programs to add a unit and then maybe sell it into that market where you are seeing a lot of foreign demand, there might be a little bit of opportunity over the next two years for there to be less demand below three units and more demand above three units, at least for foreign capital. And yeah and, and objectively, sorry, the one last thing is like, you know, I talked a lot to a, lot, a couple of people. I did CBC Vancouver for um, for this piece, and then I also did something with um, with the Toronto Star. And one of the big things was, you know, do we is there 
evidence that you know people who don't live in Canada have a slightly less understanding of how of the the, the nuances of, of the local market because they're not here on the ground seeing all of these things. So there's a little bit of a, a lower level of, of rational rationality of, of consumption. Like they're not as able to to be as micro in their decision making as um, a Canadian investor who's boots on the ground who can see the market and interact with it would be. Um, that's just the last piece I'll add there. Yeah, no, really, really good points. I want to keep exploring this uh, a little bit because I pulled another article, um, get a lot of great information from this from this news outlet called Canadian Mortgage Trends. So go check them out. The article is titled The Latest in Mortgage News, Government Unveils Details of Its Foreign Buyers Ban. So as Dan mentioned, starting Jan 1, 2023, non-Canadians will be prohibited from purchasing residential real estate for a period of two years, although the government announced a number of exemptions. Some of those exemptions include recreational properties, including cottages, cabins, and other vacation homes, buildings with more than three units, as Dan just mentioned, international students based on certain conditions, including having spent most of the previous five years in Canada. Dan, why don't you finish off the list of the other exemptions here? Yeah, foreign nationals with temporary resident status, workers who have filed tax returns in Canada for at least three or of the last four years prior to buying their property, refugees, refugee claimants, and those fleeing international crises, diplomats and consular staff living in Canada. And a member update sent to, to the Mortgage Professionals Canada indicated that legislation does not rely on mortgage professionals to enforce the ban. However, both the non-Canadian purchaser of prohibited property and any person or entity that knowingly assists in the purchase can be fined up to $10,000 and the property can be forced to be sold. That I found very interesting. That last little piece is, okay, so the mortgage agents aren't supposed to enforce this. The the foreign buyers likely won't enforce it upon themselves. So who's going to be the who's going to be enforcing this? Is it going to be the CRA? Is it going to be CMHC? Is it going to be old old Justy himself? It's interesting because we're seeing it happen with vacant homes right now, where it's an opt in. Uh, in Toronto, right? They just did a vacant home tax, and so you have to basically declare whether or not your home is vacant or not right now, or occupied or not. So if it's like a self enforcement thing, and Airbnbs being another good example in Toronto, where they have you know this this new enforcement thing, and and they're not necessarily regulate regulating like we don't have it. Be, it eventually becomes an enforcement problem, especially when you're doing it at a national level. It's it's very. Mm difficult to police right it's kind of the honor system here right guys please please don't do don't take it. all um, the candy yeah i mean this this led me to dive in a little further and do a bit more research because we know that we have seen stuff like this before right you'd already mentioned we've seen it in both toronto and vancouver so this led me to pull another article from our good friends at Better Dwelling, a publication that dan contributes to quite a bit and, and i've contributed to as well the article titled Foreign Buyers Own 1 in 10 Recently Built Condos in Canada and 1 in 20 Homes in Total. So not all homes are owned by people. Some are owned by trusts, which can be used to skip the foreign buyer's tax. And corporations are all, all are also often homeowners. Dan, you and I know this very well. We own a lot of our stuff in corps. But the idea of being a foreign-controlled corporation is still being foreign-owned. However, Canada doesn't track the beneficial ownership of companies for the most part. This means they really don't know who ultimately owns that company. 
In BC, they've started to track beneficial ownership by providing, but it's proving problematic. And an anti-government corruption organization found none of the data is validated and no ideas required. So the results of this are very questionable. This, this to me just leads to essentially, again, it's the honor system and, and we have no real way of tracking. And I feel like there's so many corporate, clever corporate ways around this that, uh, you know, who, who knows what, what impact this will have. Yeah, it is interesting. You know, there's some stats from that article, but also like, you know, from it, it really depends on like who's gathering the data. There's this funny book that's if anybody's looking for some interesting reading, it's called How to Lie with Statistics. But <laughs> yeah, but um, you know, I mean, we don't do that on this show, by yeah, the way. But the, you know, the, the government said that the, the Ford government said that increasing the tax, the um, foreign ownership tax to make it province wide reduced the consumption of foreign ownership or sorry the foreign owner foreign investment so of total purchases was five percent and they claim that it, they reduced it to three percent um so almost halved the amount but the you know there's other evidence that says okay well maybe they're not actually even buying a lot of resale market homes um, Ontario has seen foreign owners buy one in 11 new condos. For an example, BC has seen one in eight new condos bought by non-residence owners. Nova Scotia has had one in nine new condos purchased by foreign buyers and foreign buyers owned one in 10 new condos in New, new Brunswick. So a lot of it is these pre-construction opportunities where yeah. they're coming in with the cash that, I mean, pre-construction investors basically support builders by giving them a leverageable deposit and that's basically project financing for the builder of these projects and you have a lot of that so so we don't know whether or not that's going to fall within the exemption category we don't know whether or not the policing of this transaction takes place like look if i'm buying a pre-construction home today my expectation is that 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 home's not going to be built for over two years and so i'll take possession of it after this tax is already or this ban is already over because it's only a two-year ban and so you know I don't know if it's necessarily going to solve anything. I do think it's kind of a toothless policy, but I, if they can remove all, if they remove all foreign buyers from the resale market, it could have a meaningful impact on price as we saw in Vancouver and Toronto. Um, most people think foreign ownership is low due to property transfer data. However, Canada doesn't actually know who owns any of the homes in the country, right? So, and I just did an interview with James Cohen for for Better Dwelling for that. We don't we're throwing policy at a problem that we don't even know what the problem is because we don't have the data because we don't have beneficial ownership registry. Yeah, and I mean, I think you know, there's a decent amount of foreign investment out there, but I think it definitely gets it definitely gets skewed. Um, you know, you read one article, you see some of these stats, and and all of a sudden, a foreign buyer and foreign ownership is a huge issue. But I think these bans, uh, you know, they seem to be filled with with loopholes, and and you know. You don't have to be too clever to figure out a way around some of these rules, but obviously the intent of the government is to use these political uh, bans and this new legislation to, you know, cool this this hot market. Even though we've already been experiencing quite the cooling, for sure, for sure, yeah. And and even in the data, it does show like it, a lot of it. We're just seeing that demand shift to new construction homes because the the resale market isn't isn't the lucrative piece if you're buying capital appreciation you can get levered exposure to it by just buying pre-construction con um pre-construction contracts basically um let's jump to the next one here despite affordability challenges the desire to home 
to own a home is growing, according to an Ontario Real Estate Association survey. So it says the hurdles to home ownership may be higher these days, but so too is the desire to be a homeowner. And we're going to get to the hurdles when we go through the National Bank's affordability housing affordability monitor, which is an awesome quarterly report. Um, nearly seven in ten homeowners, or sixty nine percent, said they really want to own a home. A nine percentage point increase since January, according to a new poll commissioned by the Ontario Real Estate Association. No bias there. <laughs> a, uh, at a time when homeownership rates are on the decline, the desire to own a home is still growing, said Stacy Evoy, president of Oria. Despite a decline in home prices over much of the year, affordability did not improve, which we'll get to later, because of the rapid rise in interest rates. This actually ties in nicely to a piece from The Economist. Uh, Dan, you and I both both love The Economist. They put out a ton of great data that we use. Um, and this was about the best places to live in North America. And if you haven't seen this list, you may be surprised to know that Canadian cities ranked first to fourth as the best places to live in North America. So that does not include Mexico, but that does include Hawaii, which I don't see on the top five or ten anywhere. Um, so the first one being Calgary. Number two is Vancouver. Number three is Toronto. Number four, Montreal. Then we go to the first represented place in the States as Hotlanta, better known as Atlanta. Then all the way down the list, New York at 21. Houston takes 23rd and Detroit, Rock City at 24th. So I'm not going to lie, Dan, I'm a little surprised about this list. But before we move on, let's look at what this list was based on. So it's based on the livability of a city. But what makes a city livable? Now, there are more than 30 factors related to education, culture, the environment, healthcare, infrastructure, and stability were all analyzed to get to these data points. The index's author also explained that the top cities were chosen by how they have rebounded from the pandemic in addition to factoring in the stability, good infrastructure and services and enjoyable leisure activities. Now, Dan, you posted this on Twitter. Why don't you tell us some of what some of the responses from the lovely Twitter crowd was? Yeah, Twitter loved it. I, I, th I think it's, you know, obviously <laughs> affordability isn't what this Map. This is not a map or a list of. It's not the. It's not the affordability I mean, map. Yeah, no. Yeah. No. Certainly not. So obviously, there's a price to pay if you want these factors that the Economist is relying on. So, um, <laughs> the first uh, response to the to the tweet thread that you're mentioning there, Nick, is uh, how much did the Canadian government pay the Economist to produce these <laughs> results? The next one is uh, NYC ranking below Toronto. Seattle below Vancouver, Houston below Calgary. I'm not even going to address Montreal. Oh, that's mean. Then the next one is, is weather a consideration in this? Because if it is, then I seriously doubt the methodology. <laughs> and the final one is Rolls-Royce and Porsche also top best cars to drive list, which is, you know, really, really good summary of the problem, actually. It really is. And listen, we all know the Twitter crowd for being a nice, understanding group of people. So we appreciate all the comments, everybody. Um, this is another great segue. Wow, it's almost like someone planned these these segues here. Uh, this is a really good segue to our next piece, which is titled A $200,000 plus income is now needed to qualify for the average mortgage in Toronto and Vancouver. Probably also need to be making more than $200,000 to be driving a, uh, a Porsche Rolls Royce, but we'll leave that for a different podcast. Um, 
so this is a uh, a great piece, and we, we've got a chart in front of us here, which is the RBC Housing Affordability Measures for Canada. Um, Dan, why don't you walk us through the first few points here? Yeah, so in Vancouver and Toronto, to qualify for a home for uh, valued at basically the benchmark price, they buyers uh, now require an income of two hundred sixty-eight thousand dollars and two hundred forty thousand dollars, respectively, according to this report. Victoria is a close third, where buyers need at least two hundred sixteen thousand dollars to qualify. Um, RBC's analysis is interesting, and the chart here is great. Although it only goes back to '89, so you know we'll cover this a little bit more exhaustively. Yeah, '89 was a great year, Um, but you know to really get some an understanding for this, housing affordability was at its worst in the early 1980s, which doesn't show on this chart. And we will cover that when we go through National Bank's similar analysis because they have almost the same chart here. Um, So I won't get it too into the weeds here on this, Um, but jump into this quote here, Nick. Yeah, skyrocketing home prices earlier in the pandemic raised the bar by several notches for the Canadian buyers. But the spike in interest rates since March served a crushing blow in parts of the country. It's never been so unaffordable to buy a home. Uh, The pressure on buyers is being felt not only in the country's most expensive cities, but in mid-sized markets from coast to coast. Here's a look at the minimum incomes required to qualify for a mortgage on a typical home in various cities across Canada. Ottawa, $149,000. Montreal, $127,000. Calgary, $123,000. And Halifax, $116,000. We jump to Edmonton at $99,000. Saskatoon at $89,000. Regina, $79,000. St. John, $74,000. And St. John's, 77,000. So these are the minimum incomes required to purchase a home. Now let's take a look at some of the average salaries across the country to see if that's even remotely achievable. So I'm going to pull this up. Uh, We have Nunavut at 87,355. Now this is an individual salary, I think, not average household income. This is individual salaries, yeah. 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 Uh, Northwest Territory, 77,000. Alberta, 61,000. Yukon, 61,000. Ontario, just 55,000. Newfoundland and Labrador, 55,000. And we move on to Saskatchewan at 54,000, just over British Columbia, 53,516. Quebec at 51,735. Manitoba just under the 50,000 mark at 49,661. New Brunswick 49,511. Nova Scotia 48,470. And Prince Edward Island at 45,950. Now, Dan, before we move on, it's it's kind of crazy to see that, you know, Ontario at 55,000 and BC at 53,000 when we know it is crazy expensive to live and we just went over talking about the fact that you know you need 200 plus thousand dollars as as income to to live there so you got to have four people with average salaries to be able to even qualify for a for you know a standard mortgage in in one of those two provinces kind of scary yeah i think the interesting part there as well is this is how you end up in on the UBS bubble index, right? Where you have this, because that, that UBS bubble index, when we re- revisited it, uh, we did an ep- a whole episode on it. It's called the biggest real estate bubble in the world, I think. So you go check it out. But 
you know, it reads as a list of all of the top cities in, in the world, all the world-class cities, let's call them. And what happens in a lot of these places, you get this huge income to price disparity in the real estate asset. And what like functionally what that is, is a result of is income disparity in these cities. You have a, a lower kind of like service class and then you have a lot of knowledge work and this global talent competing for wages and sort of like the upper and, and Canada is very much seeing that happen, especially in our two bigger cities, Toronto and Vancouver, two more expensive cities, Toronto and Vancouver, in sort of what's called the K-shaped recovery, right? Where you have a bottom line that kind of goes down and a top line that goes up on the K-shaped recovery. Um, and and it kind of makes you wonder, like, you know, we're exporting tech talent to um, – Silicon Valley. So we train some of the best tech people in Kitchener, Waterloo, Cambridge at the universities there, and they they can go and get paid far better. And there's a CBRE report on this that we can put into another episode. But you know, Toronto and Vancouver have some of the least competitive tech wages in the world. So the question is like, who can afford these houses, and what are the best paying jobs in the Canadian market? The employment sectors with the highest paying wages in Canada are energy and natural resources, finance and insurance, and scientific and technical services. So not the tech sector growth that we're hearing all of these cities tout happening. In fact, actually, in the Canadian market, tech is very much a race to the bottom. So mining, oil, and gas extraction average salary or highest paying wages is one hundred thirteen thousand. Dollars, utilities over a hundred thousand, finance and insurance seventy six thousand. Um, yeah, if we move on to professional, scientific, and technical services, we're still at about the seventy six thousand mark, and just below that in public administration, so government employees make about seventy five thousand, seventy six thousand. So, looking at these numbers, you start to see why you know, more and more people are buying homes together, are doing the drive to you quantify, drive to you quantify, or are using co-signers that I believe want probably one of the highest rates we've ever seen. And and just through the research done for this episode, I think co-signing deserves a full episode. So stay tuned for that. Um, Dan, let's move on to the next article here from our friends at investing.com. Uh, I believe that we are slowly going to start building a relationship with them over there. Canadian Economics Recap, the five most important stories from last week. Dan, start us off with story number one. Story number one features a man who might have stole Christmas. A guy named Tiff Macklem said, there's a greater <laughs> risk. Green. Yeah, there's a greater risk of under-tightening versus over-tightening policy. In an end-of-the-year speech at a fireside chat in Vancouver, Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem reiterated the messaging he has focused on for much of the year that inflation remains too high that the period of interest rate adjustment has is is difficult but necessary and that the bank is committing to, committed to bringing inflation back to its 2% target more more importantly mr macklem's speech implied that the bank prefers to err on the to the upside on interest rates when it comes to tackling stubbornly high inflation as it attempts to balance the risks of over and under tightening monetary policy. Uh, quickly, before you jump into the next one here, actually, you can mention sort of what we did in, in episode one, um, and then I'll, I want to pull up an interesting stat here actually as well. Yeah, I mean, for anyone listening, or, or even if you have listened to episode one, we <laughs> we did so much research for episode one Um that I've actually gone back and listened to it a few times just because it we really do a full look at how Canadian real estate how Canadian real estate has performed in a rising rate environment which we are living in right now. So 
There's a lot of under-tightening in the 80s, which is counteracted by over-tightening in the 90s. Uh, and again, we cover that exhaustively in, in episode one. So go back and check that out. And you'll start to, it'll start to really illustrate um, the situation that we find ourselves in right now. For sure. Um, I think the other piece before you jump into the mortgage stress test is um, I, I found this on Twitter a while back. I'm just, I, I couldn't find the exact article, but um, I just pulled up this one that a recession should bring down inflation. Um, and so this is why they are happy to to err on the side of over-tightening because over-tightening means you're getting a recession. And in the past hundred years, basically since we've been in the mon- modern financial system, recessions have in every single case caused inflation to get back to the target range. And so if they over-tighten, yeah, it causes a lot of economic pain. But then what happens is you see a huge contraction in the economy, and that causes disinflation and deflation, depending on the scenario, and we get inflation back to that target range. Then we can start economic expansion again with the responsible loosening of monetary policies and introducing more credit into the market. So we force ourselves into a recession to go from the 7% we're at currently down to the 2% that we want, getting rid of that 5% delta that is causing all this pain, only to get back to that 2% and start this whole process all over again. Well, it's just like it's the devil you know versus the devil you don't. Like it's, it's, and Ben Tal even said this, if the Bank of Canada has to decide between inflation and a recession, they're going to choose a recession every single time. Recession has a 100% success rate of curbing inflation. So it, it sucks, totally. it's a necess- but it's a necessary evil. And, and I think, you know, the f- it's, it's kind of one of those things, the faster we can get into this recession, ideally the faster we can get out and the faster we can experience the recession, the less likely we are to experience stagflation. So... It sucks, but it's one of those things that just kind of has to happen. Um, let's move on to the second story that we need to know according to investing.com. Mortgage stress tests to remain unchanged. Canada's banking regulator, the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions, otherwise known as OFSI, will maintain the interest rest used to qualify uninsured mortgages for key stress tests. Uninsured mortgages include most residential mortgages defined as residential mortgages with a down payment of 20% or more. The minimum qualifying rate will remain greater of the mortgage contract rate plus two percentage points or 5.25%. The announcement comes as economists have been calling for a rise in the stress tests in the face of these rising interest rates, record high inflation and significant volatility in housing markets. Um, it is funny because I've been watching OSFI a lot. It is pronounced OSFI, by the way, which is really weird because I used to say it OFSI for years, but I just started, I like just realized that it's office of the superintendent. So the S is the but, second letter. Yeah, no, you're my dyslexia kicking. That's my dyslexia no, kicking like, back No, like, well, it doesn't, doesn't roll off the tongue especially well. So <laughs> they, they, you know, like everybody just says it as OFSI and people know what they're talking about. But anyway. Yeah, you know what I mean. Um, I, I people were surprised that they didn't roll back the stress test. But the reality is I think that we're still in a risk on environment. So we still do need to stress test some of that risk out of the market. But the other piece is that I think that, I mean, look, we, we have had this, I've had this conversation a lot, but like, I think the right hand and the left hand know what they're doing. And I think that OSFI easing the stress test will pre, uh, it'll, it'll almost telegraph that we can expect 
interest rates to start coming down because if they if they don't know if interest rates are going to have peaked, then why wouldn't they continue to stress test, right? Because they're stress testing further increases into the market. And right now we're at a point where fixed rates are higher than, or sorry, fixed rates are lower than variable rates in a lot of cases. So you don't need to stress test the variable. What they're stress testing for is the renewal. And if we're in an inflationary environment for the next several years, five years as an example, which it could take that long for inflation to come down, not, you know, it it could, um, then you're stress testing the renewal. If somebody who's getting a 5% rate today, yeah, it seems like that's the highest mortgage rate you could ever possibly think of having to get on a fixed rate until five years from now. You know, tell that to somebody who signed a four-year or four percent mortgage mortgage interest rate five years ago. I just had a renewal letter come in three percent higher than than the rate that I signed my original deal at. So, yeah, um, Canadians' debt obligations, interest payments show record rise. This next statistic perhaps illustrates why economists are calling for a change to the mortgage stress test. Canadians' debt obligations jumped 5.6% in Q3 from a compared Q2, a record increase. Significantly, the interest portion of debt payments jumped by 16.2%, also a record. Statistics Canada also reported that Canadians now owe $1.83 or $1.83 in credit for every dollar of household disposable income that they have on an annual basis, which is, I think, the highest we've had. It was like, yeah. and quickly before I, I let you jump to the next one here, this is why, like, a lot of people are saying, oh, this is why economists are saying we could see an easing of the stress test. This is why we need this stress test, because all of those other debts, all of those other debts were never accounted for in the original stress test. We weren't accounting for inflation. We weren't accounting for truck payments going up. We weren't accounting for credit card costs going up, HELOC payments going up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Go down the list. Think of something in your life that hasn't gone up in cost this year. Did the stress test count for any of those things? No. Um, before we do move on, I just want to point out that you and I have probably said a record increase or breaking a record dozens Would you say we're times. living in unprecedented times? I I wouldn't say that because I think it's been said too much, but yes, I bet you someone's going to say that. I would say and I swear there's unprecedented there use of the word unprecedented. Yes, very much so. And I would say a record amount of breaking records for things you don't want to break records for, such as the longest landlord tenant board waits, the longest permit waits, the worst part, uh, the worst traffic, the, you know, the debt increase, the credit increase. Yeah, we have, it's, uh, we have way too many gold medals for all the wrong reasons. We're on a roll here. Anyways, let's keep it moving here. We've got two more stories that you need to know about. My last one here is housing sales are down by 38.9% year over year. As rates rise, pressuring debt obligations and sending interest payments soaring, the Canadian housing market continues to slow. The Canadian Real Estate Association says seasonally adjusted home sales fell 3.3% on a month-over-month basis in November of this year. Compared with a year ago, actual home sales in November were down 38.9%. That is crazy. About 60% of all Canadian markets saw lower sales in November, led by Greater Vancouver, the Fraser Valley, Edmonton, and of course, the GTA and Montreal. Quickly wrap up on the last one before we get to one of my favorite quarterly reports. So house prices are expected to fall an additional 2% next year. I would say that's probably a a little bit of an understatement, but uh, Royal LePage now forecasts a further 2% dip in the price of a single family home by the end of 2023. Uh, You might know Royal LePage for forecasting that prices were going to go up 20% last year. Um, 
with the average price expected to fall to $780,000. Condominium prices are expected to fall just 1% to 568 over the same period. The Canadian Real Estate Association, in comparison, forecasts a 0.2% increase in 2023. These are the people that the average consumer is getting their information from. As Canadian when they house should prices, be getting it from us. Well, yeah, they should. Tell all your friends. <laughs> um, Canadian house prices begin to stabilize following aggressive policy tightening and rate increases by the Bank of Canada. I don't know what economic scenario leads to those outcomes, but I would love to see the model that they're using. That's all I'm going to say there. And before we move on there, or sorry, before we uh, use that as a, as a segue to what I would call one of the the, the biggest or most important things to, to to look at, which is housing affordability and especially housing affordability leading into real estate cycles. So quickly going to pull this one up. Uh, if you want to search this, it's National Bank's Housing Affordability Monitor. I think if you just Google that, it should work. National Bank of Canada, um, also known as Banque Nationale. Um, oh. Yeah. They, they post this on a quarterly basis. It basically goes through market by market um, different cities and provides a couple of different metrics to decide whether or not those markets are affordable. Uh, the primary one being mortgage payment as a portion of income. So I have a couple of those in the notes here, Nick. Can you, can you read me? Because this is, this is nuts. I I see these. Also, yeah, guys, this this report is highly detailed. We might do a full episode on it, as Dan said. We'll probably start covering it quarterly as it comes out as as a as a segment. But but just for now, I'm gonna I'm gonna oh man, (laughs) I'll take the first two here. I'll give you I'll give you the last the the third one. So it's it's a bit of good news. So again, this is mortgage payment as a percentage of income. Toronto, one hundred percent, one hundred. Which is which is not good, guys. You don't want that. That should be thirty percent. That's that's where we want that number to be. So anything over thirty is not good. So give me um, give me the hundred minus- metrics in Toronto as well, if you can, from this screen share. Okay, let me let me see here. Well, let me let me do let me do Vancouver first, and then and then we'll hop back to Toronto here because Vancouver Vancouver makes makes Toronto look affordable because Vancouver is almost a hundred percent. Over that thirty percent, at one hundred and twenty-seven percent MPPI, and that's mortgage or percentage of income. I'll let Dan take the good one here, but first, let me uh, let me hop in and and, and zoom in here on. Uh, let's go back up to Toronto here, Dan. Yeah, let me. Well, so so Calgary's mortgage payment as a percentage of income is forty-three percent. So it's over that affordable threshold where the government says. You know, you should only be spending thirty percent of your household income on a mortgage payment. Uh, so Calgary is above, and it's been that's that's moved up five point six percent quarter over quarter. Um, but it's not nearly as bad as some of the the others. Edmonton, I think, is the closest one on this list to that affordable range at thirty four point two percent of uh, household yeah, that's, income. That's that's not bad at all. That's great. Ottawa Gatineau at fifty three point one percent, and this is using local uh, average household income. Quebec City is thirty three point three percent, so very close actually. Wow. Yep. Winnipeg thirty four point five percent, more expensive than Quebec City. Hamilton and Victoria. Victoria is over 100% as well. But the crazy, this is where you really put it into perspective. So let's go back to, let's go back to Vancouver and read the, read me this number, Nick, which is months of saving required for the down payment uh, at a savings rate of 10% on the average household income. Let me get my calculator and see how, how many, uh, how many months or how many years, I think it's 40 years. are in, 
It is 38.25 years, so 459 months. So I'm 33 right now. I will be in my mid to late 60s if I started saving right now, if I want to buy my dream home in Vancouver. That that hurts. Yeah. Actually, I'd be, I'd, be, I'd be over 70. Yeah. I'd be in my early 70s. So if anyone wants to come over for uh, tea and biscuits in my, in my early 70s, um, I'll be in Vancouver at, at that point doing that if, if this number doesn't get any worse. Yeah, the household income they use as well, which you can you know circle back to that last uh, – or that, that one article that we covered from Canadian Mortgage Trends earlier in the episode, um, 350000 that you need to afford a house in, uh, in Vancouver. Let's check out – Just um, wild. And in Toronto, you'd need $273,000 to afford a, a house. And how many months of saving? Oh, and uh, a measly – 361 months so only 30 years so i i would still be in my 60s i'd be in my early 60s guys come on come over for I, at that point i might still be drinking wine so come over for a glass of wine i'll be in my early 60s and uh we can hang out at my place in toronto if i start saving right now so quickly before we wrap up i'm i'm gonna zoom in here on this chart on the first page of the housing affordability monitor from the national bank of canada which shows the Perspective on housing affordability. So monthly mortgage payment on a median home price of all all types of dwellings on a 25-year amortization on a five-year term. And the chart basically shows the um, percentage of median income. And it varies on a city-by-city basis. So, And this is why I find it interesting because Vancouver is almost at as expensive as it was in 1981 when you saw interest rates got, you know, remember when you hear boomers talking about interest rates hitting 20, 30, what, 21%, I think it was. So Vancouver is close to its 1981. And if you want an exhaustive look at how, what happened after 1981 to 1983, go to episode one and, and join us from the very beginning. But what we do is we, we look at basically mortgage, uh, or sorry, the the mortgage costs as like so an affordability as as percentage of median income, and then sort of what happened as a result of to house prices uh, and inflation after um, each of these real estate cycles. So Toronto um, is far past its 1981 peak, and it had a worse peak in 1989, which you can see on this chart here. Um, and we're going to be releasing visual show notes ideally um, this year as sort of, sort of our 2023 little hobby project. Um, so email us if you want access to those, cause we're just going to be testing them out for now. Um, and then you've got all of Canada is, is just about at the 1981. But if you look at Calgary, Calgary is a really good example of a market that's not even remotely close to its peak, uh, peak unaffordability in 1981 and hasn't, it's, it's basically just kind of getting into that bad territory. So Calgary economically, and when people, you hear economists talking about how Calgary could likely remain resilient, through this recession, this is what they're talking about. They're not completely detached from fundamentals like the rest of these markets. And it's really important. This is one of my favorite charts that I've ever seen in Canadian real estate, to be honest. Wow. And that's coming from like Mr. Chart. That's pretty good. Also, obviously, Calgary's doing well. It's the best place to live in North America. Come on. Number one, baby. Yeah, a lot of news, a lot of headlines, a lot of headlines bullish for Calgary right now. I mean, I hate I hate to be beating a dead horse that like, but, but you know, and I think that there are other cities that are the same. They're just not getting the attention that Calgary is getting. I would say you're, you're looking at kind of similar. Halifax is a little bit overextended, I think, on price, maybe a little bit overbought. Moncton, kind of the same thing. But as those cities recoil a little bit and get back to ground zero, they have you know much better price-to-income ratios than places like Toronto and Vancouver. Love it. 
Awesome. I think that uh, that takes us to the end here. We hope everyone has been enjoying a lovely winter so far, a very happy holidays, a very Merry Christmas in whatever way you celebrate. Thanks so much for the support, everyone, so far this year. It means the world to us. We can't wait to spend all of next year with all of you and hopefully see you at an event. Thank you very much. The Canadian Real Estate Ambassador is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center, license number 10317, and a partner in GNH Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.